We do have the joy of coming back this morning to our study of the Gospel of Matthew and finding ourselves again in this great chapter of Matthew chapter 12. It's a, uh, a passage this morning dealing with signs, and uh, we all understand signs in a general sense. We see them all the time. When we drive around, we see road signs, or hopefully we see the road signs. Uh, some of you might blaze right past them uh, over and over again uh, through intersections and along highways and stretches and back roads. Our traffic is controlled by those kinds of things, stop signs and yield signs and uh, no U-turn signs, all designed to keep things moving along and to keep everyone safe, hopefully. You ignore them, uh, probably, as, as other people do sometimes to your own peril, making judgments along the way, whether, you know, the police are going to pull you over if you go five miles, eight miles, nine miles, ten miles, uh, or higher above the speed limit. Or if you can, uh, with a yield sign, you know, beat the oncoming car. Or uh, if a U-turn really means, or no U-turn really means no U-turn if there's not much traffic. Or any number of other signs that you may ignore along the way. And it's not just traffic signs. There are other signs that are in your life that people ignore all the time. There are signs of heart attack with chest pain and uh, tightening and shortness of breath or nausea. There are signs of concussions with dizziness and uh, foggy uh, thinking and blurry vision, sensitivity to light. There are signs of car trouble when your engine light came on last summer and you haven't done anything about it. Uh, That is something warning you that there's a problem. Noises, vibrations, smells, coming from the car that you don't recognize, signs of financial trouble, using one credit card to pay off another credit card, paying bills at the last minute or past the due date, making minimum payments only, signs of relationship trouble, spending less and less time with those that you say you love, communicating minimally, almost always negatively, always with some level of resentment afterward or lack of resolution. There are all kinds of signs, signs that people ignore of trouble, signs that are there to ward you from the kind of dangers that are ahead, signs that are meant to call you back to a place of peace and safety. But by far the most serious signs The ones that you should never ignore are the spiritual signs. They're the signs from God. The signs that He's given you that call you to faith and to faithfulness. And this is the one that has the most, or these are the ones that have the the most consequences, the deepest consequences, the eternal consequences. And today we come to a passage that deals with the danger of ignoring those signs. It's the issue that is in front of us in Matthew twelve thirty-eight through 42 uh, that really uh, was a, a, a conflict, a, an incident between Jesus and the Pharisees, ignoring the signs of Christ to their own grave destruction and eternal danger. And yet this is exactly what they did, exactly what so many people still do 
ignoring the signs of the Messiah, ignoring the signs of Jesus, pretending like God hasn't given you adequate signs, pretending like God hasn't given you adequate evidence, pretending like he hasn't given you the warnings that are necessary to turn you back from unbelief. Listen to this passage as I read it for us this morning. In verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The topic here is clearly signs. It is those things that God has given to his people through the ages by which they hear the truth, or by which they pay attention to the truth, hear the truth, and believe. And in this particular case, it is Jesus responding to a disingenuous request for more signs. It is a hoax. It comes from, uh, from voices and from lies and from hearts that are not sincerely seeking the truth. They're not sincerely wanting to know and wanting to find who he really is. And as we've seen so many times, Jesus doesn't indulge this kind of religious showmanship very easily. As we've already pointed out uh, earlier, these were people who were not seeking Christ out of good and sincere heart. And so rather than responding to their request, we see Jesus once again here doing whatever he can to expose their lack of sincerity in both word and deed. He exposes the resistance that's really in their heart, and he does it and, 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 and presents this, or Matthew presents this account for us so that we can see it for what it really is. And, and you might think of it through three vantage points, sort of out with the outward pretense of these religious hypocrites, the inward resistance of their heart, and even Jesus gives us some ancient parallels to help us evaluate what's really going on here. And we could begin with the outward when Matthew presents for us in verse 38, these hypocrites that resisted under false pretense. The hypocrites who resisted under false pretense. Jesus uh, is confronted in verse 38 by what Matthew tells us are the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who have been opposed to him now for quite some time. They, you may remember back in verse 14, had already conspired against him how they were going to destroy him. John tells us that this has already happened, not just here in Galilee, but down in Judea. John chapter 7 says that even then there were Jews in Judea who were plotting how to kill him. In fact, Jesus was avoiding 
Judea and Jerusalem mostly at this point. He was operating primarily up in the regions of Galilee because, John says, he knew that he wanted that they were trying to kill him in Jerusalem. So he was already having to sort of watch his flank, guard his uh, uh, sort of uh, um, uh, rear guard. He had to look out from over his shoulder because people were always trying to get him. He was well aware that there were conspiracies and plots and schemes to overthrow him. And here, now even in Galilee, the religious leaders were running out of patience with him. And so they come and they answer him or they respond to him, meaning that this all took place on the same occasion as what we had seen a number of weeks ago back in verse 22. When Jesus had healed a demon-oppressed man. So this all took place, if you will, in the context of a miracle. In the context of what we might normally consider a sign. Jesus had already given them a sign. He had already given them a miracle. In fact, He had given them many miracles. Many signs. Many reasons to believe. And yet after all of those things, somehow, some way, they're still not satisfied and they come and they present to him their request really out of a desire to lure him into some sort of trap, some sort of way to further criticize, further discredit. Already they had decided in their heart to deny him. Already they had come to the conclusion that they were not going to follow him. And now after he just performed another miracle, they're asking for another sign. We get the impression that even if Jesus had answered them now, it wasn't going to be enough. It wasn't going to be something they would, always, they would be satisfied with. They'll always be seeking a bigger and bigger sign, a greater and greater miracle, something spectacular. In fact, over in Matthew 16, this happens again when Jesus goes down to Judea. And again, is confronted by the Pharisees down there, and they're asking him, that says in 16.1, trying to test him, they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. So probably it's the same idea here. They wanted a sign from heaven. Wasn't enough to heal a man. Wasn't enough to cast out a demon wasn't enough to do some sort of natural miracle in that. They wanted something more spectacular, more showy, something that would stretch across the heavens. On the surface, the question might seem innocent enough. Just like you, when you encounter unbelievers along the way in the course of your life, and they're throwing up their objections, they're throwing up their their problems, their criticisms, and you are prone at times to uh, meet them on what you consider to be neutral ground because you assume that their questions are coming from a neutral heart. Well, that's not the case, certainly with these Pharisees. They are, like every other unbeliever, born at enmity with God. They come into this world hating His law and hating His righteousness. They come into this world battling with Him. 
And so when they come and they present their case here, what they're demanding, what they're asking, these greater and greater signs, these more and more uh, spectacular miracles, is just another indication they're not going to be satisfied. Even if Jesus responded, they would not be satisfied. They would find another reason to reject him, another reason not to believe in him. Because all of this was pretense. They're more interested in justifying their rejection than they are in finding the truth. They're more interested in, in uh, defending their own self-righteousness than they are in actually finding out the truth of Christ. They wanted their question to sound genuine. They wanted it to come across as reasonable. They wanted it to appear to be real, but in fact it was not. They were pretending like there was still some need for Jesus to do more. It is ridiculous, really, when you think about it, that he had just healed a man in their presence. It's, it's really difficult to wrap your mind around how they could go on in their pretense, how they could go on in their rejection, and yet they did it bold-faced. They had seen him heal thousands of people already. They had even seen him raise someone from the dead. They had experienced the supernatural. They had even known Jesus to penetrate their own hearts with this supernatural awareness of their thoughts. See, the issue for them, like every other unbeliever, is not enough, is not a lack of evidence. It's not as if God needed to do more. All of this is pretense. They're like every hypocrite from every age. Their questions are designed not to find truth, but to sow deeds, uh, seeds of doubt in the minds of those watching. To cause just enough plausible doubt so as to make themselves appear more sane, more reasonable. To cloud things, to distract, to stupefy They claim to want to know the truth, but it's only superficial. Of course, people do that today. They throw up their objections as if they're real objections all the time. They might say to you, well, I mean, who are you? You can't force people to believe what, uh, you can't force people to believe what you think they ought to believe. And so you respond like, really? So you're saying I'm wrong to do that? Forcing me into your mold? See the kind of hypocrisy that's thrown up all the time? Or they, they might say to you, well, you know, all religions are basically the same. Really? Well, how exactly are they basically the same? No one ever wants to answer that question because, honestly, they really have never looked into it. It's not a real objection. Or they might say to you, well, no one can really know the truth about any religion. Really? How do you know that? You see, hypocrites do this all the time. They throw up objections that are not real objections. They throw up reasons that are not real reasons because they haven't really thought through them. They're just trying to dodge. They're duplicitous in the way they apply the standard. And they never apply that to themselves. These are the kinds of statements. These are the kind of evasion tactics. These are the kind of of sort of smoke screens that people throw up all the time. And here are the Pharisees doing exactly the same thing. They're dodging the truth. They're not really looking to find and to search 
They're intentional roadblocks designed to shut down the proclamation and declaration of the truth. But Jesus isn't going to have any of it. He, isn't, he doesn't shrink away. He doesn't sort of slunk away. He doesn't, he doesn't find himself speechless in the face of their ongoing pretense. He knows their tactics. He knew their request was not really a request. It was really an objection. He knew that their ulterior goals were lurking in the shadows. He, he knew their design was to just find another reason to criticize him and his message. And so he shifts the focus from their external pretense in verse 39 to their internal hearts. Hearts that revealed unfaithful pursuits. He answers them in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. It's a generation that he says, you are a generation, he says, that are adulterous. You are unfaithful. You are disloyal. You are deceitful. It is, in other words, the same impulses and the same motives, the same sort of attitudes that drive an unfaithful spouse, like a husband or wife that verbally claim to be committed to a marriage, but they don't keep that commitment. So it is, Jesus says, with this generation, they claim a certain commitment to the truth. They claim a certain commitment to honesty. They claim a certain commitment to searching out and finding a pathway to God in their situation or in the situation of an unbeliever, finding a pathway to happiness. But they don't keep that commitment. They don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know God. They don't want to seek what is good. They don't actually want to hear anything beyond what they already have assumed in their own hearts. Jesus, therefore, uses this language in a way that they would have understood. In fact, uh, for Jews especially, they were familiar with this because it was used all over the, New, the Old Testament to speak of Israel in their spiritual adultery. God spoke of Israel as his bride, the wife of his covenant. He had established a covenant with them just like we do in a covenant of marriage. There was a, an exchange, a ceremony even that was associated much like we have a marriage ceremony where they made commitments and he made commitments. And yet Israel repeatedly broke that commitment. They went after other gods. They sought other truth. They found other sacred ceremonies. They gave themselves to other pathways. They were unfaithful, broke their commitment, went after other gods with their adoration and their worship and their reverence and all of those things. And so when Jesus charges this people with being adulterous, they would have understood the implication. They would have framed it up exactly uh, as they would have understood it in the Old Testament. Not now so much by wooden idols or miniature statues, but in this case, it was their own human opinions. It was their own man-made religion, their own self-made human traditions. They had long since set aside any true love of God and replaced it with a love of themselves. And so Jesus calls them adulterous and evil. The word is poneros. It's actually a word that is used of Satan himself, the evil one, the poneros. 
This is a wicked generation. Really an extraordinary kind of a thought when you consider what was around Israel with all of its paganism. And here is the one nation on the face of the earth that had been God's chosen people, had his scripture and his prophets, had his temple and the sacrifices, had all the ceremonies and all of the outward trappings of a God, uh, excuse me, of a, of a nation that worshiped God. And yet he calls them a wicked and evil, a ponderous generation. I mean, we could imagine that in other times and other places, the kind of savage societies that we might read about from history. You might even look at your own modern era as a wicked generation, a generation that parades its kind of debauchery and sin in all corners of society, blatant and proud. And you might imagine that this is a wicked generation, but it's shocking that Jesus would declare this of Israel. And even the people he's talking to were the religious leaders respected by their communities. Probably on the outside, they were loving parents. They were upstanding citizens. They went to the synagogue. They gave money to help others. They appeared to be on the outside righteous, morally good. But the true condition of their heart is manifest most clearly in its response to Jesus. That really is the defining, that's really the defining thing about your heart. It's not what other people think about you, it's what you think about Christ. It's the way that you respond to Christ. His words, His Lordship, His gospel. And here they are turning against the Son of God and asking Him to do more and more and more to convince them that they should follow Him. Well, He wasn't going to capitulate. He wasn't going to give them the sign they were asking. In fact, He says the only sign you're going to receive is the sign of Jonah It was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And he says the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's all you're going to get. It's all you need. Which is obviously a reference to his resurrection. Comparing it, sort of paralleling it with Jonah. Three days and three nights. You say, wait a second, that's three days and three nights. That's 72 hours. But Jesus went into the tomb on Friday afternoon, came out of the tomb... Sunday morning, that's not 72 hours. Why does he say three days and three nights? That's kind of a, a Jewish convention. They call it the Ona, the rule of Ona in the, uh, in the uh, Talmud. It uh, describes this. Any part of a day is considered as the whole. And so sometimes Jews, in fact, several times in the Old Testament, they use this terminology three days and three nights, not meaning three full 24-hour days, but just simply three days, three concepts of a day. And so Jesus just using here, if you will, this Old Testament language to represent this parallel between Jonah and himself and the miraculous work that God did through Jonah and the miraculous work he was going to do through the resurrection. And he's telling these Jewish leaders, this is the only sign you'll receive, the only sign you'll ever need. 
As the scripture says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That's all you need. That's all you'll ever need. But of course, for these guys, it wouldn't. It wouldn't work. They'll keep on demanding. They'll keep on objecting. They'll keep on complaining. And even when Jesus does give this sign eventually, they're not even going to be satisfied with that. In fact, look with me over at Matthew 27, the very end of that chapter, Matthew 27. We read about their response in verse 62. After Jesus was buried, it says the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal, steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the tomb and setting a guard. Now, verse 1 of chapter 28, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb and behold, there was a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you to Galilee where you will see him. See, I told, see, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran and told the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his seat and worshipped him. Jesus says, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, Go to, get, go to Galilee and they will see me. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest, all that had taken place. They told him all that had taken place. They told him they were standing there as guards. They told him that the earthquake happened. They told him that the angels appeared. They told him that the stone was rolled away and they told him that the body was gone. And when they had assembled, the elders taken counsel gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away. While you were asleep. Basically lie. Here's the hush money. Now you go and lie. See it didn't matter. The sign didn't matter. It never matters. Unbelievers don't believe. Not because of a lack of signs. But because of a love of sin. And this was these. Pharisees, they were seeking a sign. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you the sign you're seeking. The only sign that you're ever going to really need is going to be the sign of Jonah, the, the, the three days and three nights. 
But even that's not going to be enough. They were absolutely determined to resist Jesus at every turn. Which brings us really to a final angle through which you can see their resistance even more clearly. And that's by way of comparison with, in verse 40 through 42, the heathen that responded to unexpected signs. Heathen, the pagans, the, the irreligious, or at least the, uh, the uh, uh, I guess you might say the um, polytheistic, the ones who didn't have the scriptures, they didn't have the prophets, they didn't have all the background, they were immoral, they were debased, they were brutal cultures, especially the Ninevites, whom Jesus mentions in verse 40 through 42. And yet they responded to the signs. The sign of Jonah, they responded to it. He came... Jesus says, and preached to the men of Nineveh. You remember the story? Jonah was called to preach, and he didn't want to go preach to them. He tried to run away because he hated, he despised the Ninevites. They were a brutal and barbaric people. In fact, they're still, to this day, displayed in the British Museum, their artwork depicting their brutality. They would go in, they dominated the ancient Near East for 150 years, attacking, plundering nations all around them. And one of their favorite things to do was to torture the people that they overtook. They would impale live people on stakes and parade their writhing bodies through the streets as a sign of terror to the cities that they conquered. Jonah couldn't stomach the thought that God would intend to have mercy and show grace to this kind of people. So he hopped on a boat and headed in the opposite direction. You know the story. The boat was overtaken by a storm. The sailors tossing everything overboard and fearing for their own life until finally Jonah confesses that he's the cause of the storm until they finally toss Jonah over the boat where he is swallowed by what the Scripture calls a great fish, most likely a whale. Inside of the belly of the whale, he comes to his own realization of his self-righteousness, his pride, his resistance to God. He repents and the fish spits him out on the beach and he walks three days to Nineveh and begins to preach. He preaches a simple message in chapter 3 of Jonah. It says, then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. All of this was just sort of the outward signs of internal grief. They sorrowed. They grieved over how they had offended God. And Jonah 3.10 says, God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. These 
These were pagan, brutal terrorists. They didn't have any of the sort of privileges of these Jewish leaders. They had no prior knowledge of the true God, no prior knowledge of His will, of His ways, of His righteousness. God sends them one prophet. He preaches one message. And the entire city responds. He wasn't even a happy prophet. He didn't even love them. He was reluctant. He was coming. He possessed one lousy miracle that he had brought on himself. Many people believe that even when he showed up, he, his body would have still been showing the effects of all of the acids and enzymes within the belly of the whale. He would have been probably bleached white having walked through the desert sun with all that chemical on him. And it brought about spiritual renewal that lasted 150 years in Nineveh. And yet, Jesus says, you have one here who is greater than Jonah. Greater than Jonah in every way, greater not only in terms of power and His miracles, greater in terms of His love and His grace, and greater in terms of His person. His ministry had been validated to them again and again and again. And there wasn't just Jonah. In verse 42, there was the queen of the south, a queen of Sheba. Uh, this story out of 1 Kings chapter 10, a, a, a queen from the tip of the Arabian Peninsula, which uh, the uh, Jews considered to be the end of the earth. Jesus says she came from the end of the earth. This was an extremely prosperous people because they were on the tip of the peninsula. They had some of the primary ports in all of the ancient world and trade routes passing through their land from India to Africa and the Mediterranean and all of that redounded to enormous wealth and prosperity, particularly to this queen. And yet, she was a pagan. She was uh, an Arab. She was somebody who herself had not been exposed to the truth. She had not known anything about God's, God's word. She had not known anything about God's righteousness. All she knew was a distant reputation of something she had never laid her eyes on, something she had never seen. She had only heard faint rumors about the greatness of Solomon. And yet, what did she do? She was willing, with no specific invitation, with no specific guarantees, she was willing to make a long and arduous journey, three weeks across the sands of the desert, all to go and find out if what everything she's heard is true. And she came, and she heard, and she believed. And Jesus is saying, someone greater than Solomon is here. This lady would have crossed whatever deserts necessary, whatever obstacles necessary. And yet they wouldn't believe. It's a terrible, terrible thing. 
It's a terrible thing when an unbeliever resists so many opportunities, so much grace, so many signs, so many reasons to believe. See, it's not usually those or it's not often those who are the ones with the greatest access to the word who respond with the greatest humility. Those with all the religious pedigree, those who have all the privileges are sometimes the ones with the hardest hearts. They have all the access to know all the things they need to know and yet they end up rejecting it. They have the hardest time seeing their desperate situation. The hardest time seeing the darkness of their own hearts. The hardest time seeing their dire need for God's mercy. They're the ones who are most offended by the idea that they need to humble themselves before Christ. And yet Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This was the gospel of Christ. And he wasn't going to curtail the severity of the message to appease the religiously proud. He wasn't going to give way to the superficial objections of those who were standing in their own pride. He was here to call those who were seriously ready to deal with the issues in their life and heart. Like the Ninevites. Like the Queen of the South. Like anyone who hears the account of His resurrection. And like every person through history who have heard it and responded. They believe because he's declared to be the Son of God by power through that resurrection from the dead. Father, we're grateful that you have given us these signs. We're grateful that we have the Word, that we have everything we need through him who loved us. Greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than any messenger in all of history or all of time. Christ has come to share with us the message of salvation and we're thankful. I pray, Father, for those who are here today who continue to throw up their superficial objections. I pray once and for all that they would see themselves for what they really are, needy before you and that they would call out for your mercy. You came to save sinners, Lord. May you do your work in all of our hearts to your glory, praise, and honor, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.